Well, verse by verse, we are reading through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Of course, we're not just reading through it, we are thinking about it, and we are applying it to our own lives, which is what preaching is for. That is what preaching is for, at least expository preaching. Preaching should stand between two worlds, the world then when this book was written and the world now when this book is being read. Preaching should stand between those two worlds. And so the questions of preaching should always be, what did this mean for them and what does this mean for us? What does it say? What is the truth? What does God mean? And then, so what? What does that mean for my life? Why does God have this word in my hands and in my head? So preaching is trying to connect those two worlds. So we are two verses in to Paul's letter to the Philippians, having started last week, reading together the first two verses only, Paul's formal greeting. And this morning, we're going to get into the actual message of Paul's letter as we look at verses 3 through 8. And here's what we will find. In verses 3 through 8, we will find that Paul is thankful for the Philippians. Paul is thankful for the Philippians. He is joyfully thankful for the Philippians. This is not a forced thankfulness. This is a free thankfulness that wells up deeply within Paul. He gives two reasons for this thankfulness that he has. The first reason is that the Philippians have been faithful partners with Paul in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first reason he's going to tell us why he's thankful for them. And that's a good reason to be thankful. We should all have partners with us in the gospel like these Christians in Philippi. It's a good reason for Paul to be thankful. It is a great reason for Paul to be thankful. But it is not the biggest reason for Paul's thankfulness. It's a great reason, but there's a greater reason. There is a second reason that Paul gives, and we will see it when we get there. I hope you'll be encouraged when you see it. I hope it will result in your own thankfulness. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Would you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, would you make us thankful today through the understanding of this truth? Would you make us joyful this morning? Would you make us confident this morning, God? And we're not just looking for a fickle feeling that will come quick and leave quick, that will fade as the day goes on, but we're asking for a thankfulness that will abide, and we know that it will only abide if... It is rooted in truth, in something from you, in something beyond us, in something everlasting. So take your truth, God, through our ears and through our minds, straight and deep into our hearts, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that... We have here under the seat in front of you, which if you don't have one, I'd encourage you to use it. In fact, take it with you if you don't own a Bible. You'll find Philippians chapter 1 on page 636. Page 636. A little bit of what we talked about last week. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Philippi, to Christians in Philippi. They're called the Philippians. It is a church that he helped establish, actually, Ten years before he's now writing to them. You can read about that. You can read about the beginning of that church in the book of Acts chapter 16. Philippi was the very first city in Europe to be reached with the gospel. 
And that's what you can read about in the book of Acts. Paul did not spend a lot of time there, especially initially, but he would revisit them. They would exchange letters with one another. They would keep in touch. And they would share, up until his death, a very close and intimate relationship. So Paul is done with his formal greeting. That's verse 1 and 2. And he gets on with his actual message, beginning in verses 3 and 4. Would you look at these with me? I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. This entire letter that Paul writes has a tone of thankfulness. And so he begins here with thankfulness. That's our first observation, is that Paul is joyfully thankful for the Philippians. Those are the first words out of his mouth when he writes them a letter. He is joyfully thankful for the Philippians with joy, Paul says in verse 4. With joy. So this is not a half-hearted thanksgiving. This is a heartfelt thanksgiving that he has for the Philippians. Paul is not thanking God for the Philippians the way you might thank God for your trials. It is not that kind of a relationship. Some of you have had those kinds of relationships, and you thank God for those relationships, but the prayer goes something like, God, thank you for this relationship as I know it makes me stronger. You don't want to be the person in the relationship with someone that makes them pray pray like that. God, thank you for this relationship because I know you will somehow, some way, though I can't see it, use it for my good and use it for your glory. I know it will strengthen me. That's not, though, that's not, though, though you should be thankful for those kinds of relationships. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is thanking God for this relationship because it is bubbling up from within Paul. It's his instinct. It comes natural for him to thank God for the Philippians. And it is bubbling up, apparently, out of Paul all the time. Did you notice that? It is an ongoing thankfulness that Paul has. Listen, in all my remembrance, always, in every prayer, for you all. It's an ongoing thankfulness he has. Every time he thinks of them, he's filled with joy. It is a pleasure. It is a pleasure for Paul to pray for the Philippian Christians. This church, among others Paul writes to, it stands out in that way. His relationship with this church is very unique. They are a blessing to Paul. They are not a burden to Paul. They bring a smile to Paul's face. He deeply loves the Philippians. In verse 7, if you look down a few verses, he says, I hold you in my heart. Hear these expressions of love. Some commentators have said this is a love letter from Paul to this church. He loves them deeply. So he says, I hold you in my heart. In chapter 2, verse 12, he calls them my beloved. In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls them my brothers. Listen to what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And then look just a few verses down. We're reading it. Verse 8 of this chapter, Paul said, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. There is no mistaking it. Paul loves the Philippians. And Paul is joyfully 
thankful for the Philippians. Why? Don't you want to know? Why? Why does he write to them in a way he doesn't write to others? Why is he thankful for them in a way that he's not thankful for others? Why is Paul so thankful for these Christians? That's what he tells us next. So in verses 3 and 4, we have the expression of Paul's thankfulness. And then in verses 5 through 8, look with me. Paul is going to tell us the two grounds beneath his thankfulness. These are the grounds beneath his thankfulness. These are the reasons that Paul is so thankful. And there's two of them. Here's the first reason Paul is joyfully thankful. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And here it is, verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is joyfully thankful for the Philippians' partnership with him in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day I met you until now, been faithful, and you are in partnership with me in the gospel. The Philippians are partners with Paul in the gospel. That is the first ground beneath his thankfulness. They are in the gospel together. The word here for partnership, kinonia, which also translates as fellowship. It translates as communion. It translates as participation. I think it's probably good in this case that for those of you that are reading the English Standard Version as I'm reading, it's probably good that they do not translate the word as fellowship because we might not understand what Paul is getting at if we heard the word fellowship because fellowship is often misunderstood. Fellowship is one of those words that Christians tend to use all the time. And when certain words are used all the time, they can lose something. They can lose their significance or, or we can forget what they actually mean. Fellowship is a, is a word like that. Fellowship is more than Christians in a room together. Fellowship is not just Christians occupying the same space. Fellowship is not just Christians hanging out together. But a lot of times that's what we mean when we use the word fellowship. And if we're going to watch a game with someone who's not a believer, we say, let's hang out. And if we're going to watch a game with a believer, we say, let's have fellowship. But it's more than that. It's got to be more than that. It's not just being in the same room with Christians. So what does he mean? Partnership is helping us here. But fellowship, partnership. Here's a couple things to keep in mind. First, fellowship describes a close and committed relationship that is forged by a common interest or goal. That's fellowship. I'll say that again. Fellowship, biblical fellowship, describes a close and committed relationship that is forged by a common interest or goal. And listen, Paul says it here. The common interest for Christians is the gospel. That's it. The common interest, the common goal that closely and intimately connects and commits Christians together in fellowship is the gospel. That is what we as Christians 
have in common. And often, that's it. Often, that's about it. We have the gospel in common. Look around you this morning. Look at the people who are here today. Consider that you would not be friends with most of these people if the gospel had not brought you together. You wouldn't know these people. Think of these people, for those of you who have been a part of this church for years. Think about these people that you love. Think about these people that you are willing to give yourself up for, who you know are willing to give themselves up for you. Think about these people who you know love you and who you love and who encourage you and strengthen you and are an example to you. And consider that you would not even know many of these people if it was not for the gospel bringing you together. It is not our backgrounds, it is not where we live, it is not our preferences, it is not social or economic status. We are here for the gospel. And many of those other things, we don't have any common ground. We believe the gospel together. We want to conform our lives to the gospel. We are, and here is Paul's word, we are participating in that. We are committed to that, the gospel. So we are therefore committed to one another. That is Christian fellowship. That's what it means to be part of a fellowship. That's what it means to be in fellowship. The gospel is why you are here. There are no bells and whistles here. That is not why you are a part of this church. There's no bowling alley. There's no big screen TVs. Well, there is a big screen TV, actually, now that I say that. But there's no executive membership option here with perks. That's not why you're here. You sing week in and week out old songs written by dead people. You wrestle with little ones during worship. You listen to long prayers and long sermons because you are united together in the gospel. That's why. That's why you're here. Think about it. Why are you here? You heard the gospel. You heard me preach the gospel. You heard another preacher here preach the gospel. You heard a member here preach the gospel. You heard the gospel. You saw the power of the gospel demonstrated in the lives of people around you. And that, that is what hooked you. The gospel. So again, that's first about fellowship It describes a close and committed relationship that is forged by a common interest or goal. Second, this fellowship, this partnership, and this is very important. Fellowship is active. Fellowship does stuff. Fellowship is not just a thing that is. Fellowship, it's active. Fellowship is demonstrative. For example... When the Philippians supported the poor believers in Jerusalem by sending them money, and Paul talks about that in Romans 15, 26. They're supporting those Christians who are poor, and they're sending them money. And the way Paul describes it is he says that they were fellowshipping with them. So here they are, hundreds of miles away from them, and they are fellowshipping with them. How were they fellowshipping with them? By supporting them. Because fellowship has hands and fellowship has feet. Fellowship does something. Listen in just a couple verses. Look at verse 7. As Paul is describing this partnership, this fellowship does something. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Which is just another way of saying you're in partnership with me in the gospel. 
You are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The partnership is active. They are partaking of what Paul is partaking of. They're having what Paul is having. It is like they are in prison with Paul. They're praying for Paul. They are helping Paul. They are sending Paul money. They are sending Paul people. Even as Paul is imprisoned, they are defending the gospel, he says in verse 7. They are confirming the gospel, he says in verse 7. No wonder Paul is joyfully thankful for the Philippians. Are you thankful? Are you thankful? Are you characterized by thankfulness? Do the words come out of your mouth? Thank you. Thank you. I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for. Are you thankful for those who have partnered with you in the gospel? Those who have encouraged you, those who have sent you scripture, those who pray for you, those who challenge you, those who rebuke you, those who hold you accountable, do you know who they are? They are those who are partnered with you in the gospel. They love Jesus more than they love you. They love the gospel more than they love you. They love you because they love Jesus. They love you because they love the gospel. And so they love you more than anyone else can love you. Are you thankful for them? Do they know that you are thankful for them? Are you thankful for those who are partakers with you of grace? Who are you partnered with? Who are you partaking of grace with? Who brings a smile to your face? And to whose face do you bring a smile? Are you thankful? Or do you murmur and grumble and complain and assume the worst? Or are you thankful? Are you characterized by this kind of gratitude in your life? Are you thankful to the point where you could be in prison on death row facing execution and you're bubbling over with thankfulness for people on the other side of an ocean. Thankful. So again, Paul's first ground for thankfulness. Paul is joyfully thankful for the Philippians' partnership with him in the gospel from the first day until now. Well, there's one more verse we haven't addressed. And it is the central verse in this text. The Philippians' partnership in the gospel is a ground of thankfulness, but it is not the ground of thankfulness. So if you thought that was good, that's nothing. That was a ground of thankfulness, but it was not the only ground. It's not the only reason. It's not even the best ground. It's not even the best reason. Verse 6 is. And I, Paul says, am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So here, verse 6, here's what God has done. You see, that's different from what Paul has said. The words before, verse 6, look, the words before and the words after are about what the Philippians have done. In fact, verse 
6, if it wasn't there, imagine, look with me, if verse 6 wasn't there, you might wonder why Paul is thanking God and not the Philippians. I mean, they're the ones that are doing all this, if you take out verse 6. They are the ones who believed Paul's message, didn't they? They're the ones who have partnered with him, aren't they? They have partaken of grace with him. They have supported him. They have loved him. They have sent him letters. They have sent him money. They have sent him people. But look at verse 3. What does Paul say? I thank my God. He doesn't even thank them. Paul is not thanking the Philippians. He is thanking God. Why? Why is Paul thanking God? Why not just thank the Philippians? And verse 6 tells us. Paul understands that from beginning to end, it is God's sovereign grace behind it all. So that's where the gratitude goes. Ultimately, it is the sovereign grace of God that leads to Paul's joy and thanksgiving. Let's look more closely at this verse. The greatest joy, the greatest thankfulness, the greatest gratitude that we could ever have is going to be rooted in things that we are sure of. Right? Our greatest thankfulness, our greatest joy, our greatest gratitude is is not going to be rooted in things that we're unsure of or or on shaky ground or that are here today but might not be here tomorrow. The greatest joy we're going to have, the greatest thankfulness we're going to have, the greatest gratitude we're going to have, it's going to be rooted in whatever it is that we are sure of. So what is Paul sure of? It is a very strong word that he uses. This is complete and total confidence. Just complete and total confidence. I'm not thinking about this one. I'm not examining this one. I'm not testing this one. I don't have questions about this one. I'm not doubting this one. I am sure of this. That's how strong it is. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I hear two things here, two things, and I'm going to try and show you in other scriptures that this is not just a Philippian thing, it's a Christian thing, so that you don't read verse 6 and think that must just be for the Philippians, the, the, the work that God began in them, he will see through to completion, but that doesn't include you or me. But I want to show you in Scripture that it is a Christian thing, not a Philippian thing. What God did for the Philippians, He has done for you or He may do for you. Here are the two things Paul is sure of if we break it down. Number one, God began a good work in the Philippians. Number two, God will finish that good work in the Philippians. And I'm telling you, this is the best of news. Let's take them one at a time. Number one, Paul says to the Philippians, He, this is God, began a good work in you. Well, we looked last week at what God began in Philippi. You can go and read Acts chapter 16, and you can read about this work this good work beginning in Philippi. Remember call, Paul's call to Philippi? Remember Lydia? Remember the jailer? 
God, Paul is nowhere near Macedonia where Philippi is, and God sends Paul a vision of a man from Macedonia who is calling Paul to come and preach the gospel. And then Paul goes to Philippi, and then he begins preaching the gospel. And then God opens the heart of a woman, one particular woman named Lydia, and he opened her heart to listen to what Paul had to say. And then God sent an earthquake to set Paul and Silas free and to set the jailer free. This is God, God, God. God sending a vision. God opening a heart. God sending an earthquake. This is how this church was planted. This was the beginning of the church. God began the good work. No one reads that and thinks anything else. God began the good work in the Philippians. And God began the good work in you. Miraculously. Paul did not start it and never takes credit for it. The Philippians did not start it and you did not start it. God got Paul there. God put a message in Paul's mouth And God opened hearts to receive it. And we are told all of that explicitly in Scripture. Someone has wisely said that a preacher's job, whether I'm preaching, you're preaching, me preaching to you on a Sunday, you preaching to your coworker, you preaching to your neighbor, you preaching to your family. It is the preacher's job to get the gospel to a person's ears. And it is God's job to get the gospel from their ears to their heart. Paul understood this. All he could do was get the gospel into Lydia's ears. And he did faithfully. And God opened her heart. God did that for the Philippians. Paul knows that. That is why his letter does not begin with, thank you, Philippians. But rather, he starts with, I thank my God. Now listen, that is not a Philippian thing. That's not a first century thing. That's a Christian thing. Let me show you. There's so many verses we could read. But how about Ephesians chapter 2? Let me, let me read you these verses. If you'd like to turn there, you can. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So this is talking to Christians, and it's talking about when you were not a Christian, before you became a Christian, before you were converted. And how does Paul describe it here? He says, you were dead. You weren't physically dead, obviously. But you were spiritually dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. So what happened to you when you were dead? Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were, here's the word again, dead. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. You know what dead people are bad at? Taking initiative. I just have never seen a dead person take initiative. God takes the initiative. And when God makes someone a Christian, 
He raises them from the dead. That's the picture in Scripture. So let me see if this makes sense to your heart. Is a preacher doing this, which you have probably heard before? Is a preacher preaching in a hospital full of sick people? And he's got the medicine. Or is a preacher preaching in a graveyard? It's a graveyard. I was dead in my sin. And God made me alive in Christ Jesus. Now you say, should say, you probably would say, wait a minute. I believed. I believed. I placed my faith in Christ. And of course you did. If you're here and you are a Christian, there was a moment when you believed the gospel. There was a moment when you placed your faith in Christ. So did the Philippians. But here's the question. Why did you? Why did you believe the gospel? Why did you place your faith in Christ? Why didn't the person next to you believe? Why didn't your sibling believe? Why didn't your son or daughter believe? Why don't your parents believe? They've heard the same gospel. Why haven't they placed their faith in Christ? And you don't want to say that there's something better about you. You don't want to say that you were smarter. You don't want to say that you were more spiritually open. No, no, you know that's not true. So why? Why did the Philippians believe? We were told why they believed. And God didn't do this with all of the women down at the river, but He did this with Lydia. Acts chapter 16, He opened her heart. You were made alive, you were awakened to your sin. The scales were removed from your eyes. You were given eyes to see and ears to hear. Your heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh. And when that all happened, you cried out in faith. You cried out in belief. You were reborn. Paul says it this way in just a few verses later in Ephesians 2. Your faith was a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, so many verses we could read here, but I, I want to I get this. I want to get this as deeply as we can with the time that we have so that we really get the force of what Paul is saying to the Philippians and, and Get the thanksgiving out of it. Listen, here's another scripture in John chapter 1. Listen to how John puts it in the first chapter of his gospel account. David read us these verses this morning. It's in John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Amen. And so you received Jesus. You believed in His name. The Philippians received Jesus. The, the Philippians received Him. They believed in His name. But why? Is there any more to the story? Did anything happen before those people received Jesus, believed in His name? Well, what does the very next verse say? Let me read them together. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. That's another thing you cannot do on your own. Get born. If this is something I do, God is not good at helping me understand it with these word pictures. Who were born. Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
my belief, my faith. It didn't, it didn't happen through genealogy. It, it didn't happen through blood. It's not because I inherited faith. I inherited belief. I inherited a propensity to this. It is not because of my own will or the will of another, but John 1.13 makes clear, by God's will. It is so true what Jonah prayed from the belly of that whale in chapter 2, verse 9, when he said, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his. The Philippians did not seek God and then God sought them. The Philippians did not choose God and then God chose them. The Philippians did not love God and then God loved them. God began the work, Paul says. God began the work. This is, if you want the theological word, monergism. There is one active agent in your salvation. This is not synergism where there are two active agents. You, if you are a Christian, have been saved by Christ alone. He began the good work. Listen, this is so important. And if you don't get this, I promise you will miss out on joy. You will miss out on thankfulness. And God will not get the glory He deserves. And you will not get the good. When you were saved... Hear it this way, you did not cooperate with God. This was not, this is what Paul is saying here, this was not a joint effort. God began the good work, not Paul began the good work, not the Philippians began the good work, not even God and the Philippians joined forces to begin the good work. God began the good work. You did not cooperate with Him. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century pastor, once had a man come up to him and say to him when describing his conversion that, well, when I was saved, he said to Charles Spurgeon, when I was saved, God did his part and I did mine. And Charles Spurgeon looked at him sideways and said, good sir, explain to me what you mean by that. And the man went on to say, well, God did his part and I did mine. He saved me and I got in the way. That's right. That's exactly right. God saved me and I got in the way. Listen, my only contribution to my salvation is sin. The only contribution I have made is qualifying myself for salvation. That's it. So that's the first thing Paul is sure of. God began the good work in the Philippians. But that alone, we need that. It is the building block to what he says next. That alone is not reason for this level of joyful thankfulness that Paul has. So here's what we need to hear. Now, building on the truth that God has begun this good work in the Philippians, that God has begun this good work in you, here is the good news. God always finishes what He starts. God always finishes what he starts. So this is number two. God will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. James Boyce, the great expositor of the 20th century, he said Philippians 1.6, the verse we're reading today. Philippians 1.6 is one of the three greatest verses in the Bible that teach the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine that no one 
whom God has brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ will ever be lost. Now, friends, if you do not believe that, you are reading your Bible upside down. You are reading your Bible completely and utterly backwards. If you think that someone can be brought to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and then be lost here, you are absolutely wrong. This is not what Paul is teaching. This is not what God is saying. God is at work in His people's salvation from beginning to end. It's all of God. It is all of grace. And don't try to take any of that for yourself. That you get in the kingdom or that you keep yourself in the kingdom. That's not what the scriptures teach. You're not giving God the praise that He deserves. You're not giving Him the glory that He deserves. And you are taking credit where you should not. God is at work in His people's salvation from beginning to end. And He is behind it in such a way that Paul describes Him as being the one who is working it in and seeing it through to completion. God will finish what He started. That's His encouragement to the Philippians. God will finish what He started. That is especially good news for those of us who start things and do not finish them. You ever just catch yourself assuming that God is the way you are? That He thinks the way you think, that He acts the way you act, that He's upset about the things that you're upset about, that He loves the things you love and loves the way that you love and... How many things have you started and not finished? How many things have you committed to and not followed through? How many diets? How many exercise plans? How many routines? How many, how many projects? Right? We, have, we, have, we just have suitcases full of these things. You wake up in the morning and you think about your day and you plan out your day. And some of you have a list and you write out things that you're going to do that day. And it's like one in every 100 days that you actually accomplish them. And you say, well, just roll it into the next day. And it never gets done. You have things like this. We we don't. We don't. We're not able to. We're not willing to. We do not finish things that we start. But God finishes everything that He starts. He does not just give us the initial push that we need and then we're on our own. Paul doesn't say. That's not his encouragement. You see how important this is? Hey, for God began a good work in you. So you better make the most of that and Pull yourself up and give it your best shot because it's on you now. Isn't this what John Newton says in in the song that we all know? And I think the third verse, he says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Grace has brought me safe thus far. And does he then say, and I'll take it the rest of the way. You guys are singing that? (laughs) Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So friends, here's a very important question. Did God begin a good work in you? Everything hangs on this. Has God begun a good work in you? Were you dead and now you're alive? Do you have a heart of stone and now you have a heart of flesh? Do you, have you been given eyes to see and ears to hear? Are you in the faith? Do you understand the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? 
Is there something maybe even in this message that is offensive to you, that is offensive to you because it is true and is the gospel? Could it be that you've actually embraced a counterfeit gospel? Friends, there are so many of them, and they're preached so loudly. Do you understand who you are before God? Do you understand who God is? Do you understand He is holy? There is no thing, no one that is anything like God. He is perfectly pure and good and righteous and wise in all that He is and all that He does. He is in complete control of everything. He is the sovereign creator of the entire universe. He is the sovereign creator of you. And He has rightly called you to love Him, to honor Him, to obey Him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, to express that love for Him in your love for others, that you would love them like you love yourself, that you would worship Him, that you would honor Him above all, that you would obey Him, that you would treasure and enjoy Him and proclaim Him, that you would be His loyal children to the end. And we're sinners. And we have disobeyed Him like our great parents Adam and Eve. And we have dishonored Him. And we have disregarded Him. And we've gone our own way. And we've embraced truth that sounds good to us and feels good to us. And we've run from God and we've tried to hide from God. We've hurt others. We've been cruel in our thoughts. We've been cruel in our actions. We've been cruel in our words. We've made promises and we haven't kept them. And God is a good and just, and righteous, and great God. And He does not wink at sin. He does not sweep sin under the carpet. He deals righteously with sin. And do you know that as a sinner, what you deserve is hell? Do you know that you do not deserve to die and be with God? You do not deserve to go to be with God and His people and to have pleasures at His right hand forevermore. Do you know that there's nothing in you that earns that, that deserves that, that warrants that? Do you know that there's nothing you could do? You couldn't possibly be good enough. Do you understand that desperate trouble that you're in before God? And do you know the good news. Do you know that He has made a way of salvation? That He has made a way for you to be rescued. You understand who God is. You understand who man is. And then you understand that God became a man. And He became a man unlike you or me. And Jesus Christ lived a sinless and perfect life, not deserving what you and I deserve. And yet He died. And yet he suffered the wrath of God. And yet he was punished. Have you stopped trusting and relying on yourself for salvation and peace with God and started relying on Christ? Have you taken hold of him? Have you committed yourself to him? Have you received him? Have you believed in his name? Has he become Lord of your life? Has he become the treasure in your life? Is He your Savior and great Deliverer and great Rescuer? Here's what we're asking. Has God begun a good work in you? If that has not yet happened, then your responsibility is to turn to Him in faith and to cry out for forgiveness for what you've done and who you are before Him. If you have been saved, you cannot be lost. If you have been saved, you cannot be lost. Come hell or high water, 
you will be faithful. And you will be faithful because, as Romans 8 says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. As John 10 says, nothing uh, can possibly snatch you out of the hand of your Lord Jesus Christ. He will lose none the Father has given him. God will finish what he has started in you. Now, there's one more small phrase to look at as I bring this sermon to a close. Look at verse 6 again one more time with me. And this small phrase, as we talk about this work that God has begun in us, that he will see through to completion, it answers this question, when? When? When will my salvation be complete? You know, it's not complete. He began a good work. He saved you, but He's saving you. You will be saved. He will see it through to completion. When will my salvation be complete? When will I be fully sanctified? When will I be who I'm supposed to do? When will I stop doing what I'm not supposed to be doing? When will I actually start doing what I'm supposed to start doing? When will I have these nagging temptations and giving ins and sins? When will I be totally holy, totally pure? When will I be saved in that way? When is He going to complete this? When will I be fully sanctified? And he tells us, God will finish what he started, but it will not be finished until, what does the text say? The day of Christ Jesus. So what's that mean? That means between now and then, there's going to be a lot of peaks and valleys. There's going to be a lot of peaks and valleys. There's going to be ups and downs. But he will see it through to completion. I am glad to know that I am a work in progress. I don't know about you, but I thought I'd be better by now. And I thought I'd be farther down the road than I am at 40. I thought I'd be more pleasing to God than I know that I am. I thought that my instincts would be more godly than they are. I'm glad to know that I'm a work in progress if I thought that I was supposed to cross this finish line in this life, I would despair. And I'd be wondering, when? When? It's going to be next year? It's going to be next year? Five years? Ten years? When? When will I arrive? When will this be behind me? When will I be the husband I should be? When will I be the father I should be? When will I be the pastor that I should be? When will I be the church member I should be? The neighbor I should be? The co-worker I should be? The person I should be? When, when will I arrive? The answer is the day of Christ Jesus and not a second before. Until then, you are a work in progress. But don't complain about his progress in you. He's got good reasons. Maybe it's to now, this morning, awaken you to how lightly you've been taking your sin. And you need to repent today. So I'll close with this verse from a hymn by Thomas Kelly. Trust in Him, ye saints, forever. He is faithful, changing never. Neither force nor guile can sever those He loves from Him. Keep us, Lord. O oh, keep us cleaving to Thyself and still believing till the hour of our receiving promised joys with Thee. Then... 
we shall be where we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not now, nor could be, soon shall be our own. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that uses this word to speak to our hearts, to awaken us to our lack of thankfulness and gratitude. God, as we are reminded by the truth that we've been reminded of today, that you have begun this good work in us and that you will see it through to completion, as we are reminded that you've surrounded us with people who are partnered with us in this gospel, partaking of this grace with us. God, would that fill our hearts with thankfulness and fill our hearts with gratitude. And may we, as we leave this place today, be filled with your joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.